The last couple of months since Mark's been gone, we've been in a sermon series called The Art of Being. The art of being with God to be transformed by God and then live the way Jesus lived. And throughout this series, you've heard from me and the other elders. And today, we get to hear about another spiritual practice. But what I love about the message today is it's so rooted in the heart of the person who is giving it. So today, we get to hear about the art of worship. Let me say that again. Today, we get to hear about the art of worship from the one and only Joel Winger. Come on up, Joel. Well, thank you, Nathan, and good morning, Creekside. It's great to see you guys here. I'm officially a seasoned sermon giver now. This is my second time, all right? First service was the first, this is the second. I, uh, I'm really excited to be here. This, like Nathan said, is something that is near and dear to my heart. Um, about a year ago, a little over a year ago, uh, Pastor Mark and I were having lunch, and he's like, hey, I want to talk to you a little bit about my sabbatical and me being gone for those three months. What do you think about the elders teaching part of those? And I was like, eh, that's a great idea. You know, that sounds really cool. Um, and so, you know, we started working down that, and Nathan did this amazing job of planning out this whole sermon series. And, you know, six months go by, and I'm like, okay, yeah. I know what I'm going to be preaching on. This is good. should probably start thinking about it a little bit. You know, get ready. A couple more months go by, and, you know, a couple months ago now, it's like, okay, I should probably really get serious now about preparing for a sermon. And then two weeks ago, it's like, oh, boy, okay, we really need to get this thing going. And so as I've been processing and getting through this and the nerves and the excitement, um, all that to say, I'm, I'm really happy and excited to be preaching on worship this morning. Um, Nathan did, like I said, a really phenomenal job. Um, he literally gave us a packet that's like an inch thick on like sermon notes and, doc or not documentaries, but uh, commentaries. And so props to Nathan. He did a wonderful job of helping to prepare us for this. So worship, especially through music, um, has this unique ability to hone us in on the heart of God. Corporate worship, us singing together on Sundays, is really edifying to the body when we sing together. It feels good, you know? It's really an amazing experience. And, you know, it really helps us to focus on the one thing that truly matters. And that's how great and glorious that our God is. So today I really want to take some time and, and look at worship is and how we can practically worship God better every day. We as humans were created by God to worship. We worship because without it, we're just a wandering soul longing for that connection that we need from our King. So if you have your Bible, we're going to jump into John 4. If you don't have your Bible, but you have your phone, pull your phone out. If you don't have your phone, we'll put it up on the screen for you. So John 4, 19. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me. The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him 
must worship in spirit and truth. Let's pray this morning. Father, thank you for your word and the truth that it brings us. Lord, I pray that this morning we can have open hearts and minds to those truths that you have for us. I pray that we can learn together what it means to worship you daily in spirit and in truth. Father, reveal to us how we can perfect the spiritual discipline of worship. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so I want to, to take a few minutes here um, and kind of take a closer look at the passage, but, but with that, in verse 19, we're kind of jumping in in the middle of this story. And so I want to take a little like background look at, at what's happening and why Jesus is here and, and speaking with this woman. Um, so Jesus was in Judea which I was always wanted to use a laser pointer at church on a Sunday morning. So here we go. Jesus was in Judea, okay, down here. He needed to get up to Galilee. Samaria is in between. Pretty easy map, all right? The big thing here is that there is this cultural problem between the Samaritans and the Jews. They just didn't like each other. I'll go as far to say that they actually hated each other. So much so that the Jews would not travel through Samaria. They would actually go and go out around the Jordan River all the way up to Galilee. So travel times would be way longer because they weren't willing to go through Samaria. So why is this important? It's important because Jesus was in Judea, blown up in popularity. Large crowds of people were following him, and he knew it was not his time to be crucified. Okay, so he is going to travel up to Galilee um, to continue his ministry. All right, this is breaking those cultural norms. And and the reason it's significant is it's because Jesus knew that he had this mission from God the Father. Okay, he knew that he needed to go and meet with this Samaritan woman at Jacob's well and have this discussion with her. All right, and so that's where, you know, we're going to see here in just a minute. But John Prey, a few weeks ago, Talk to us about study, right? Okay, and part of that whole thing of studying the word is taking that look of the context of the story that we're looking at. So I'm going to give you the Joel Winger Cliff's vote, uh, Cliff Notes version of the woman at the well, all right? This passage deserves so much more than I'm going to do it justice right now, all right? But just so we kind of have a general idea of why Jesus is there, what they're talking about, we're going to do a quick run through, all right? So Jesus leaves for Judea, um, leaves Judea for Galilee and travels directly through Samaria. He's tired from his travels, so he sits down and rests next to Jacob's well. At that time, then a Samaritan woman approaches to draw water, and Jesus says to her, Give me a drink. The woman says, How is that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? Remember, Super weird that Jesus is in Samaria in the first place, much less talking to a Samaritan woman at the well, okay? Cultural, not normal, all right? So Jesus says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. She says, you have nothing to draw water with and this well is really deep. Where do you get that living water? And Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never thirst again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So the woman says, 
give me this water. I won't be thirsty anymore, and I won't have to come back to this well to draw water. Jesus says, hey, go get your husband. She says, I don't have a husband. Here it is. Jesus says, I know you don't. You actually have had five. And the one you're with now, the six, is not your husband either. All right, this is awesome because Jesus is like dropping this truth bomb of uncovering the heart issue of sin in her life. All right? And now we jump into our passage that we're going to be really focusing on this morning, verse 19. Verse 19 says, Sir, I perceive you are a prophet. Yeah, you think? All right? Jesus just uncovers this like huge thing that not many people would probably know about and calls her out on it. He's like, hey, I know that you have this sin. All right? Jesus, ultimately going to the heart issue. Jesus cares about the heart. All right? So we go from there. In verse 20, it says, Our fathers worshipped on, this is the woman speaking, our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place to where people ought to worship. All right, so this is really great because we're sitting here on this side of history where we can see, like, the conversation, the text, you know. We know she's talking to Jesus. She doesn't know she's talking to Jesus. But she goes and has this, like, you know, moment where she's like, okay, this guy knows something about me that he shouldn't. And then she goes from there and says, hey, let's talk about worship, okay? And like instantly changes the subject, all right? She's deflecting. She doesn't want to talk about her heart issue. She wants to deflect and talk about something that is a little more culturally like normal to argue about. What I love about this is in our relationship with Jesus, we're so common doing the same thing, all right? Jesus is wanting to talk about heart issues. He's wanting to look at us and see where we need to ask forgiveness, to do better, and we deflect, all right? Think back to COVID. I think it's a great example, all right, as a church as a whole, all right? We wanted to, to find things to argue about rather than focusing on worshiping God. Do we mask? Do we not mask? Do we have church inside or outside? Do we sing in church? Do we not sing in church? All right? The larger Christian church in, in, in general are always finding things to have debates about. Be it theology, philosophy, how we should do church week to week, what style of music is best to play in church. Should we do life groups, discipleship groups, gospel communities? All right, there's always something that we can find to debate. And what I want us to see is this. All these things are a distraction from our primary calling, all right? The woman deflecting into talking about worship is that, a deflection from the heart issue. Our calling is to worship God from the heart, to know God intimately and have a relationship with him daily. It's what he designed us to do. His desire for us is to rely on him in every circumstance. What we need to see here is that we, personally, we are the woman at the well, all right? Jesus is bringing and coming and chasing after the heart issue. She's deflecting, trying to get the conversation heading in a different direction. But watch what Jesus does here. It's really neat. Verse 21, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. 
We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. This is great. Jesus takes a step back. He doesn't get caught up in the debate of the cultural, where should the Jews and where should the Samaritans worship? All right? He goes back to the heart of the issue. How do we worship? Jesus doesn't fall for it. Rather, he re-engages. And we're going to see as Jesus goes forward, he pursues her, all right? Just like he's doing this with the woman at the well, he pursues those people who will worship him in spirit and truth. In the same way, in our worship, God pursues us, even through our brokenness. In our darkest moments, God desires our praise, all right? Jesus knows that the heart needs worship. So this leads us to ask the question, what does it mean to worship God? What does he desire from us in our worship? In verse 23 and 24, John talks about worshiping in spirit and truth. What does that even mean? And how do we do that? Let's take a quick look at the definition of worship. Good old Merriam-Webster Okay, got to go to that for a definition. Reverence offered a divine being or supernatural power. Also, an act of expressing such reverence. Extravagant respect or admiration for or devotion to an object of esteem. Tim Keller, I love Tim Keller's definition of worship. It's very simple. Obedient action motivated by the beauty of who God is in himself. And the great Mark Buvin once said, worship is acknowledging God's presence and valuing God's presence. So I'm going to take a page out of Nathan's preaching book here. And he always does a wonderful job of incorporating Sam into his sermons as an illustration. So I'm going to bring my boys into this and make an illustration out of it. So my youngest son, Jack, uh, is four and a half. Luke's 12 and a half. Jack absolutely worships his older brother, okay? Whether it's out fishing, like, you have no idea how many fishing poles we have in our house. Like, I'm not kidding, like 20 or 30. Half of them are broken, but Jack doesn't care, all right? And so he's constantly running around, chasing his older brother, casting in the backyard, in the house, hitting us in the head with little lures. Like, we cut the hooks off so he doesn't get hurt, but still, all right? So Jack just follows him around and wants to imitate Luke in everything he does. Whether it's on the soccer field or lacrosse field or laying on the pavement, like he literally just follows Luke around and imitates him. Luke, I have to give props to this because 95% of the time, he's so gracious and loving and teaches him and is, you know, what you would ever want as a parent for an older brother. The other 5% of the time... (laughs) It wouldn't be brotherly love if there wasn't a little bit of mutual combat, right? So, so just how Jack is imitating Luke, should we not also imitate our Savior and how we worship? How do we do that? We worship God better when we worship in spirit and in truth, just like Jesus was talking about in this passage. 
We imitate Jesus when we worship in spirit and truth. So what does that mean? What does it mean to worship God in spirit and truth? To worship God in spirit means that worship is not limited to a physical place, a building, okay? But rather that true worship comes from the heart, deep within us, the human soul and spirit. Worship must be sincere and motivated by our love of God and gratitude for all that he has done for us. So as we worship in spirit, we are acknowledging the greatness of God and that he is holy, that he is worthy of our praise. He is worthy of our imitation of his son, Jesus Christ. Worshiping God in spirit must come from deep within us. And it must be a genuine adoration of the greatness of the creator of all things. So secondly, what does it mean to worship in truth? To worship in truth simply means that worship must conform to the revelation of God in Scripture. Our worship must be built on a foundation of biblical truths. We cannot disconnect the two for true worship. All right? We must prioritize worshiping God in spirit and in truth. It must come from deep within us, and it must be based on the Bible. So in his book, Desiring God, John Piper says this, Truth without emotion produces dead orthodoxy in a church full of artificial admirers. On the other hand, emotion without truth produces empty frenzy and cultivates shallow people who refuse the disciple of rigorous thought. But true worship comes from people who are deeply emotional and who, lo and who love deep and sound doctrine. Strong affections for God rooted in truth are the bow and marrow of biblical worship. We can't put an emphasis on one over the other. So this all begs the question, how then do we worship? Music is a great tool, all right? In the Western church, worship is, is really synonymous with music. You think and you hear worship, you think music. There's nothing wrong with this because music provides an avenue for us to center our minds upon Jesus. And being a worship leader of 20-something of years, this is the way that I love to worship. It's what I'm passionate about, music, and connecting with God in a way that I can't otherwise. I believe music is a critical and biblical tool for us to use to connect with God on a deep and meaningful way. It's got a way of touching our souls and spurring us on towards real, intimate worship. But let us not forget this, that music is a means to an end. We cannot just go through the motions of singing songs and believe that we are truly worshiping God. Remember, we must worship in spirit and in truth. This may not be a popular opinion, but I'm going to say it anyways. I believe that the church, not Creekside, but as a whole in the American culture has idolized music. They've placed it above worshiping God. I think Jalise and the team here do a phenomenal job of not doing that. I think they do a great job of, of balancing the excellence in musicianship and also focusing us in our hearts on God in spirit and truth. What I am saying is that far too often the American church is too focused on stylistic, stylistic preferences in music. Music should never be a hook used to get people in the door of a church. 
If a band and the style of music is more important than the one we are singing to, we have missed the mark. Music must be used as a tool for us to interact with God, nothing more. When I was a young worship leader, I had the opportunity to to work at a church up in Nevada County. And at this church, it was a very old church. It had been around for decades and decades and decades. And, And in that, their music was primarily a traditional style of music. Organ, grand piano, the handbells, the choir, the whole nine yards. And they did it really, really well. They hired me in and they really were hoping and and they had kind of tinkered in a little bit of like some contemporary praise music, but it was never a true what we would see as contemporary service. So they hired me to do that. And I came in excited and, and, you know, brought in the drums and redid some of the sound system and, you know, tried to make it big in what I loved. The problem with this is we got caught up in the worship wars, all right? And this is where we had a church that was so set in the ways of the style of music that they were used to using that when something new came in, it was difficult. So difficult to the point that actually they started sending me personally like hate mail, like hate mail. I got emails and letters and phone calls on how much people were displeased with the style of music that we were playing. And that's nothing on me, but it just goes to show And the reason I tell the story is to emphasize this, that music is a powerful tool used in our worshiping God. All right? It can also become a major idol placed above our actual practice of worshiping God. And what I want us to see this morning is if you find yourself saying, "Ah, I don't like that singer, or I don't like that style of music, or I don't like fill in the blank about the music from whatever church or whatever Sunday, you may need to step back and ask yourself, what are you worshiping? Are you worshiping God or the means to the end? Do you feel good because you're worshiping God or because you're moved by the music? All right? The most powerful worship experience that I think I've ever had was in 2002. I was in Ukraine on a missions trip in a little town called Preluki. We were primarily working with orphans, um, but we were also doing street evangelism uh, in the city. And we met up with the, the missionaries that were in country and had been there for a long time. And these missionaries had developed this amazing church. And the building, if you can believe it, used to be a brothel <laughs> back in the day. And they had bought this building out and made it into this amazing like church. So when I was there, the, the worship leader was this amazing man, but he was playing this old beat-up guitar. It was just him and a guitar. The guitar was out of tune. It probably only had five strings on it. It sounded that bad. And they were singing in Ukrainian. So I understood nothing, you know? But I'm sitting there, and it's like, there's probably 150 people in this auditorium, and I have never felt the Spirit of God like I did that day. Because they were focused and they were worshiping and they didn't care about what it sounded like, but their hearts and their souls were reaching out and worshiping God. The point to all of this is who we are worshiping is far more important than how we are worshiping. Let me say that again. Who we are worshiping is far more important than how we are worshiping. I think I'm the lucky elder 
when it comes to which spiritual discipline that I got to preach on, all right? Because, you see, we look at the last eight weeks of what our sermon series have been, and they've been spiritual disciplines and things that we can do to better our relationship with God and our intimacy with God, and all of those things can lead us to worship, which is fantastic. So prayer, okay, solitude, studying the word, Sabbath, service, living a life of simplicity. These are all things that we can practice the art of worship. The great challenge here is actually doing it. Finding the time every week or every day to set aside and connect with God in worship. If you do find the time, I promise you that Jesus will meet you there. We just have to stop and listen. Paul in Romans chapter 12 says this, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. This is your spiritual act of worship. Love that passage. So what are some other tools or ways that we can better worship God? For me in the past, art, poetry, literature. A huge one for me is being in God's creation. Go for a walk. Go for a hike. Ride your bike. Scott Marin just went and climbed Half Dome. I'm sure he experienced God in a way on the top of Half Dome that many of us have not. Be in God's creation. Look at the things that he's made. So what holds us back from worshiping God? John Piper says, Nothing makes God more supreme and more central in worship than when a people are utterly persuaded that nothing, not money or prestige or leisure or family or job or health, or sports, or toys, or friends, nothing is going to bring satisfaction to their sinful, guilty, aching hearts besides God. We must ask ourselves, what are we placing before God? What is taking the place of worship in our lives? Is there an object, your home, your car, toys, is there a relationship? Taking care of your kids, friends, family. What's being placed above God? Those things can be an idol to us that we need to look at. Just like the woman at the well, our shame, our fear, and our sin, these are all things that we need to let go of so that we can stand before God and truly worship him in spirit and in truth. I want to end with speaking a little bit about grace and how this plays into our worship. Just like Jesus showed the Samaritan woman grace and continued to pursue her, he does the same for us. Jesus loves us. And he's abounding in grace. When I was a senior at Biola University, um, I was in my last semester at school 
And my wife Ashley and I were getting married in October, so halfway through the semester. May not have been the smartest idea. But we did anyways, because it was a week off, and we didn't have to wait till the summertime. So in a class that I was taking, um, funny enough, we're, I'm preaching in John, and the class I took in that this story is around is, uh, or was, Johannian literature, which we studied the book of John for a whole semester. That's a long time. Um, but with that, you know, I was doing great in the class. You know, I was an A student in that class. Not all classes, but that class I was. All right. And so, you know, go through midterms, get good grades. October comes. Great. Ash and I get married. We go on our honeymoon. Okay, I'm supposed to be studying on the honeymoon for some finals coming up. I definitely did not do that. So we get back, um, you know, we get back to the routine of school, but it's like we're new married, you know, it's like we're figuring this whole thing out and it's awesome and fun and I'm not studying nearly as much as I should. Final week rolls around and yeah, I full on failed my Johannian literature final. Just did not do good, okay? And so the professor was a friend and his name was Dr. Williams and he emailed me and he's like, hey, Joel, like what's, what's going on? You know, you've been an A student all semester long, and then here comes the final, and you, you fail it? Like, that just, something's not computing. I just want to check in. So I responded, and I said, hey, Dr. Williams, yeah, you know, I got married in October. It's, life's been crazy. You know, I, I'm a senior, senioritis. It just, you know, I didn't, I didn't study. Like, flat out, I didn't study. I, this is the grade that I should get. I deserve, you know? And sent the email off. Next day rolls around, and, and Dr. Williams emailed me back. He said, Joel, you know, I, I understand where your life situation is. Congrats on getting married. Super excited for you. Um, taking a look at your grades, you know, I see you got like an A on your, your midterm. I'm going to change your final grade to an A. Okay. And then he goes down a few lines, and before he signs his name, he says, grace abounds. Blew me away. Absolutely blew me away. Not because he was willing to change the grade, but it truly brought like a level of understanding of what grace is. Something that you don't deserve, but it's given to you. And Dr. Williams that day did something, and it's a total silly situation. I mean, if I would have failed it, I would have maybe gotten a C in the class, still would have passed, still would have graduated, no big deal, right? But that act that he took and, and did something for me that he didn't really need to do, it taught me about Jesus more than anything in that class did, that's for sure. It taught me about Jesus and God and the grace that, that we have through that. The same goes for us now. There is nothing, and I do mean nothing, that we have done that is too much for Jesus. Our sin was blotted out that day on Calvary, and hear this, friends, if you hear nothing else, hear this. It's that grace that God gave us through his son that is the fundamental reason for our worship. Grace abounds. May our worship rise to the same level in our affection of the greatness of our God. I'm going to have the worship team come back up here. Um, we're going to go into communion here in just a minute. But I want to end with um, a quote by Timothy Keller that I think is pretty great. 
The secret to freedom from enslaving patterns of sin is worship. You need worship. You need great worship. You need weeping worship. You need glorious worship. You need to sense God's greatness and to be moved by it. Moved to tears and moved to laughter. Moved by who God is and what he has done for you. Grace abounds, friends. So every week through the series, we've given a challenge. So here's my weekly challenge. It's pretty easy. Find time to worship God in spirit and in truth. Extra credit. Do it without music. (laughs) It's hard for me to do that. But we've had eight weeks of this amazing, like, ways that we can meet with God and connect with God. Use the tools that we've learned over those last eight weeks and find a way to worship God 